right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Crypto 101 podcast. Uh, I'm Bryce, joined by Pizza Mind, my uh, absolutely uh, incredible, notorious best friend. How's it going, man? Uh, this is the new and improved Pizza Mind coming at you for the first time here on the Crypto 101 podcast. Uh, I'm going to be singing Kumbaya for the next you know 30 minutes here with you guys. No crazy rants, no wild predictions, no angry outbursts for at least this episode. You swear? No. <laughs> what What's a Crypto 101 episode without a little uh, crazy outburst from Pizza Mind? Uh, but regardless, yeah. we're joined uh, by an incredible character, uh, incredible communicator in this space, Austin Federa, who's the head of strategy and communications at the Solana Foundation. Um, so Austin, welcome to the Crypto 101 podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. We here at the Crypto 101 podcast love all crypto networks, so long as they're legitimate. Uh, not very much bias over here. We love anyone who's trying to move the world forward faster. We've been and let saw, down by fraudsters in the past. <coughs> Luna, we have it, right? We have it. No, hey, hey, no, no, no negativity, no negativity here, Bryce. <laughs> sorry, sorry, we're we're going to keep sorry. it positive over here. I'm going to send you to money and you. Don't you do me? Don't you make me do it? Okay, okay, gotta calm down here. All right. Anyway, I saw an amazing stat that despite all the bear market last year, development in the space was up tremendously, like eighty percent developer growth last year and the largest company leading the way of that developer growth was Solana I think up like 28% of that 80 so that's phenomenal you were working over at Solana Labs who's building Solana Pay and several other of the products over there before a lateral movement not like a leaving and joining but a lateral movement over to the foundation which is doing a lot of the grants and ecosystem support can you walk us through, just give us a large overview, State of the Union address of Solana in general, because I think there's a lot of misunderstandings and a lot of fear that's still out there here towards the end of January in 2023 because of what happened a few months ago. How yeah. are you doing, sir? Yeah, you know, it's a good it's a good question because I think if you looked at the headlines in November and the second half of November and even starting up to the beginning of December, you know, it was it was doom and gloom for the Solana ecosystem. Um, but then, you know, the report that you just mentioned uh, is by put out by a group called Electric Capital. They're kind of the gold standard of like multi-chain developer reporting because it's really hard to compare, you know, developers on Ethereum to developers on Cosmos to developers on Solana. And so this group does a really great job of tracking that. The reason we know it's good is every layer one complains about the developer report. So if everyone's <laughs> upset that like, oh, the report miscounted me, it probably means they're counting everyone about accurate. Um, so, you know, the Electric Capital report showed that Solana is the fastest growing developer ecosystem in blockchain. Um, there's over 2,200 full-time developers working on protocols across the Solana network. And, you know, this period of time covers, I think, December 15th is the cutoff date. So this includes the period of time after FTX. And so if there was some massive exodus from the ecosystem, it would have shown up on the report. But what we kind of continue to see is like the fundamentals of the network haven't changed. And so the people who were building on Solana because they thought it was the best place for them to build whatever it was they were trying to build, they're still building here because it's the place that suits that suits them and suits their needs. So I think what we've seen is like a bunch of the community coming back together and galvanizing and forking out the parts of the ecosystem that had FTX involvement. Like Serum was this DeFi protocol that FTX had built that's been replaced by something called OpenBook, which 
you know, the great thing about open source code is you can just take it and redeploy it. Um, so there's a lot of that work being done to sort of, uh, you know, remove the parts of the ecosystem that have been tainted. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, 90% of the ecosystem had no involvement with FTX at all, and they're continuing to do good, even in the bear market. So when people think about Solana, what's the first thing that you want them to think of? And, you know, our audience is, you know, Crypto 101, right? So yeah. it tends to be, um, you know, folks that are not super duper deep technical into the weeds, but from a consumer standpoint, right? Uh, what, what are people supposed to associate Solana with? Yeah, so uh, Solana is built on the thesis that you can build Web3 ecosystems just as performant as Web2 ecosystems. And so that means that it's just as cheap to use as a Web2 service, it's just as performant to use as a Web2 service, but it gives you all of the principles of decentralization and blockchain governance and all those sorts of things that you expect from a decentralized blockchain ecosystem. And so Solana is, uh, it's, it's kind of strange to say, but it's a bit of a spiritual cousin to Ethereum. And it's a very different take on how to get to the same goals as Ethereum, but you know the mission and alignment is, is pretty similar there. It's to build... Uh, an incredibly fast smart contract platform that can handle pretty much whatever the world needs it to handle from an information standpoint, from a market standpoint. Um, you know, this is not relying on sharding or any of those technologies to produce, um, you know, scale and throughput. It, it's running in one global state, which I know these things are not exactly the most consumer friendly side of things, but like the idea of one global state is like what made Ethereum what it is today, that you can have all of these relationships between different protocols that from a consumer perspective tear down the walls between things if i have twenty thousand dollars in a bank at bank of america and i go to chase and i say hey can i get a ten thousand dollar loan i've got twenty thousand dollars in bank of america chase will laugh you out of the room and say no go talk to bank of america we're not going to deal with you but with crypto because different programs in one global state can all establish trust with one another you can have you know, stakes tokens in one area and you can take out a loan against them using another protocol. And that's really what that whole idea of of decentralized finance and atomic transactions in one global state is all about. And, and will sharding or the roadmap for Ethereum 2.0 break Ethereum's shared state? Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, this is the the thing about sharding is you're you're basically creating parallel copies of the blockchain. And those things all sync up at various checkpoints. And ETH2, I think, was designed somewhere around 20 minutes, or at least it was a few months ago. Uh, I haven't checked if they've if they've changed that. But what that means is that, you know, it's sort of like driving on like a 60-lane highway, right? You're all going in the same direction. It's all moving forward. But if you want to get from the outside lane and one, on one end of the highway to the outside lane on the other end of the highway, there's a lot you have to do to actually move over and switch lanes. That's kind there of the best analogy for sharding. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? And so when you're moving between um, shards on any sharded network, there's a there's a bridge involved, basically, in that mm. process there. And so yeah, you can do really... there's lots of bridges on Ethereum, that's for sure. Yeah, so, th- so shards are basically inter-protocol bridges. And so um, they don't have the same composability. Like, you can technically do use a bridge now and do a transaction between, like, let's say Solana and Avalanche, Right. But that's not an atomic transaction that requires two different components involved in it. It involves a bridge in between. When you're moving between shards on a blockchain, it's a very similar process behind the scenes. Now, of course, it's it's a much smoother experience for the user. But if what we care about is those that atomic composability, if we care about this ability for um, you know 
to not have to worry about what what shard you're on, right? It's like if I'm if you know if I have uh, I'm trying to use Uniswap in a sharded environment, suddenly liquidity is split between different shards. It becomes less capital efficient. At the same but time, it, is it the same thing the as if there's you know miners that are mining two different chains, right? And it's like of yeah. course the longest chain will be uh the consensus chain and so everybody's going to mine that but sometimes people try and do a deep reorganization attack in bitcoin where they'll start to mine from kind of deep within the chain put a ton of power behind that one chain and then kind of you know you know it's never really been successfully done on bitcoin and i think that maybe the the postulation is that it could be done on uh ethereum once it comes out because there's there's so many different like it's by design supposed to be gamed that way in a sense well, so the the thing is that proof of stake actually is designed to solve a lot of this problem. So in in Bitcoin, the the beauty of proof of work systems is that they can recover from pretty much any level of failure just by being on long enough, right? So if mm-hmm. you saw like when when China did a big exodus of Bitcoin mining, what was that a year ago, year and a half About ago? Two years at this ago, point? almost now. Yeah. Okay. So you saw Bitcoin blocks get like two hours long. But the network was able to recover even when a huge amount of the hash power dropped because the algorithm over time readjusts to wherever the hash power is on the network. Right. The downside of that is if you throw a bunch of hash power at the network, you can take control of the network. And that's very unlikely, but it is a risk. And with proof-of-stake networks, because there's a fixed amount of asset or at least a known amount of asset, in order to execute an attack on the network, you have to control the actual tokens as opposed to just controlling the hash power. So there are two different approaches to to security. I think like you know a fun thought experiment is like if the world actually switched using Bitcoin as a reserve currency, do we really think that like Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and all the defense contractors wouldn't just start manufacturing Bitcoin miners and suddenly the federal government could take control of the Bitcoin network just based on hash power? Like I think that's a that's a that's a risk people often don't uh, take into account when they're talking about uh, proof of work systems. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, there, there's a lot of different kind of ways we could take this conversation. Um, I think, you know, myself included, a lot of people um, initially when they look at Solana think, oh, it's just another, uh, you know, quote unquote, Ethereum killer. It's just trying to be another smart contract platform that's writing the coattails. But in reality, it's not just trying to be another smart contract platform that's doing things faster and cheaper. It's it's doing it in a completely different way. And I think that's something that I really want viewers to to yeah. walk away with is that, you know, Solana exists for a reason, uh, and it's uh, to do something. You know, you know, a quantum leap, really, from what Ethereum is doing. Um, and Ethereum exists right now for a reason as well. It's trying to do something. It's got a huge developer base, and so both are valid. Both are, um, you know, key parts, key technologies that are competing in a sense, but they're also they have very different views of the world. Like, there's different applications that really want to be built on both. Yeah, and look, no no shade at, at Ethereum. We would not be here without Ethereum, full stop, right? The invention right. of smart contracts is a concept, like huge debt everyone owes to the Ethereum community for all that work. But, you know, if Solana were trying to replace Ethereum or compete with Ethereum, it, it's, it wouldn't have been built on its own runtime, right? So Solana is not EVM compatible, EVM being the Ethereum virtual machine. Most, most sort of like fast blockchains, and I'm putting that in quotes, um, they they do a bunch of tricks to try and speed up the Ethereum virtual machine, usually at the expense of security. Mm-hmm. And this is why ETH2 is built very different than other networks that are trying to compete with Ethereum or trying to extend Ethereum or scale Ethereum, whatever term you want to use there, um, because 
if it, it is hard to make the EVM go faster and keep the security that Ethereum has brought to it. Mm. So you, you see solutions like layer twos. Layer twos are nowhere near as secure as Ethereum until they write those transactions back to the Ethereum network, right? And so there, there's a whole bunch of like intermediate steps to make Ethereum more performant. What, what Solana has done is basically thrown all that out and say, we're starting from scratch. We're building a different architecture for how that could work. And we can get into some of the technical details about, about how that is, but you know, it's kind of one of those things where like every once in a while, someone tries to label Solana as like an ETH killer. And it's like, if we're trying to kill ETH, we probably would have had EVM support. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, while you guys are built very different, the user experience is pretty much the same thing. You've got a wallet address, You've got a similar browser plugin wallet. You know, you send funds to the address. Sol is the token that acts like gas on the network, uh, except the transactions go way, way, way faster and way, way, way cheaper. So um, if you've never used Solana, but you've only used Ethereum, there's pretty much nothing to learn other than the names of the different tools and, you know, marketplaces and things like that. So not much of a learning curve over there for everyone else who's crypto native. Which is for really the users, nice. no. For the developers, though, yeah, there are differences. Yeah, exactly. Now let's talk about the people who've built this. Um, like you mentioned, twenty-two hundred developers from around the world coming together. I had the pleasure of meeting many of you at Solana Breakpoint last year in Lisbon, and was just very impressed, not just by the talent and intelligence, which can honestly be found just about anywhere, but the level of professionalism. Like this wasn't a goofy ETH Denver type situation with all kinds of no nonsense going on and, you know, just wildness. But there were no dance routines in of, unicorn outfits. No, no, there, were, there was no uh, decentralized dance party at the or, or doge meetups or anything. This was really just a team of professional people that were here to build together quietly um, without making a lot of noise, but letting their work speak for them. So I wanted to ask you, what was it like during the toughest time when the FTX thing broke, a lot of funding that, you know, projects were holding were on FTX and were frozen or lost and Alameda vanishes. And this was really a come to Jesus moment where everyone had to band together. It was one of the largest collapses of support, not just in crypto history, but in In all of the U.S. Yeah. Other than people losing their life savings a year before retirement in the Bernie Madoff scandal, this was like the largest, you know, evaporation of capital and support ever. And you guys had to band together and say, we're going to keep this thing going and just put our blinders on and stay heads down and focus working. Can you give us any insight into what those conversations were like, who the leaders were that stepped up and rallied the troops? What was going on behind closed doors in those moments? Oh, yeah, certainly. I mean, one of the the hardest things about that moment is nothing actually fundamentally changed about the Solana network. As a small business owner or a hiring manager, you know that success in 2023 all depends on the team members that you surround yourself with. And that's exactly why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs, because with LinkedIn Jobs, you can hire qualified candidates more efficiently by matching open roles with people who have the skills, who have the values and the experiences uh, that you desire in order to help you achieve your goals. Uh, In fact, we use LinkedIn Jobs uh, to hire quite a few people here uh, at Crypto 101. 
LinkedIn Jobs helps you quickly attract qualified candidates to your open jobs with targeting tools. They go beyond resume data by using insights from your job post, your company, and their 875 million member profiles to put your post in front of only the most qualified candidates. And LinkedIn Jobs uh, helps you identify the most qualified candidates uh, and connects you with them fast and free. Now, LinkedIn Jobs makes it easy to screen and rate applicants based on your job qualifications. Guys, it does this all on one platform, okay? And 2023 is all about finding the right team member to help you achieve your goals, okay? This is exactly why small businesses have rated LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. Now, LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the qualified candidates that you want to talk to and it does it a heck of a lot faster than the competition. So you can go ahead and you could post your free job today at linkedin.com slash crypto. Again, to post your job for free, go to linkedin.com slash crypto. In uh, terms of conditions do apply. Hey guys, TiVo here to tell you about the Ufi Video Lock, a smart lock, a 2K camera, and a doorbell all in one. That's right, three in one for triple the security. It's easy to install. All you need is a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. It gives you keyless entry, so no more fumbling your keys when you have your hands full coming back from the grocery store. No more worry about the kids losing a house key. No more worry about a guest losing the house key or forgetting the passcode on your door. And for Airbnbers, it's a no-brainer as you can change the passcode at will between renters. It has available fingerprint recognition and it has AI self-learning chips. So the more you use it, the more accurate it's going to be. You will have no anxiety with the battery charging. It is a rechargeable battery and it lasts around four months. But don't worry, when it's low, it'll give you plenty of weeks notice. And also, it always comes with a physical key as a backup. There's no monthly fee. Unlike other brands that charge you a monthly fee to get your backup recorded, they're always recorded locally and you will always have access. Customer support for the Eufy Video Lock is 24-7, so you don't have to worry about any issues you have, and it comes with an 18-month warranty. What I love about this product is it is truly all-in-one. With the 3-in-1, you don't have to go out and buy multiple parts. It's all in this package with the Eufy Video Lock. So if you're interested in learning more, go on Amazon and search Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock. Get complete control over your front door. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Usually when you see these sort of like ecosystem collapse type events and, you know, we can we can look at Terra, something along those lines. We can look at Enron. We can look at WorldCom, right? There's usually something rotten at the core there. Um, whether it's technical or whether it's just like, you know, the whole thing is just a house of cards in the case of Enron, right? Where it's like bad accounting practices that were intentionally misleading people got to a place where there was just no value left in that in that system. Which was the case with FTX. Which was the case with FTX and Alameda. Now, I, I think what's, what's really interesting there is like uh, 
from everything I've read, and these are not people I work with closely at all, but like from everything I've read, like it seems like there was a pretty JV management team mm-hmm. there. And uh, I, I am personally very curious to see if FTX US is actually, in fact, on an asset balance sheet level solvent, uh, which, you know, Sam Bankman Fried keeps claiming on his Substack. Mm-hmm. I think only time will, will tell on that. But you know, there was this perception that the Solana ecosystem was very tightly intertwined with FTX. And that came from, um, you know, some of the early days where, so so the FTX team got involved with Solana in summer of 2020, which was about four or five months after the network had launched. And they came to the network and they, they basically saw, like, we could build a central limit order book on DeFi on chain here. And a central limit order book is very different than an AMM or, uh, you know, one of those market maker systems you see in most of DeFi. An order book is what, like, the New York Stock Exchange uses in Chicago Mercantile Exchange. It's a much more advanced form of order book management. And the original idea that FTX had was, we're going to build this as the DeFi component to our, our CFI exchange. And over time, we're actually probably going to shut down the CFI exchange and see if we can build this all on, on DeFi. And, you know, and this that was, was called uh, Serum. This was Serum, yes. Uh, and so Serum. Serum was real engineering built by real engineers and real smart people. And sudden, you know, sometime maybe nine months later, a year later, uh, the focus and vision and the place FTX wanted to spend its time had shifted to DC, to regulation, to sort of using their their capital and their advantage in Washington to push legislation that was not particularly DeFi friendly. They changed, um, and it, man. Yeah, I mean, look, and, and companies go through this, right? Netflix used to be a champion of net neutrality, and they got big enough that they were like, eh, we can just pay the bill of a Comcast. We don't actually care about net neutrality anymore. Yeah. And so, like, this is, this companies do this, but that got to a point where, uh, it you know, there wasn't much, there wasn't really any work being done between the folks at, like, Solana Labs and the folks at FTX because there were just very different values about what should happen. No one had any sense that this was, you know, they were building a house of cards there. But, like, the protocols they were launching after Serum were just technically very boring projects. They didn't have really much to them. Whereas Serum, you know, that they, this was the first time anyone had built a central limit order book on chain. It could do things that no other DeFi protocol could do. And sort of the testament to that is... Uh, you know, Serum still exists now as open book. Now that the token's been taken out, all the FTX involvement's been taken out, but the open source project has been adopted by the community and relaunched and continues to be sort of a hallmark of of Solana DeFi. Um, but there really was a pretty a, a pretty dramatic change that took place there. And, and look, um, you know, the the FTX team invested fifty million dollars in Polygon. They invested like I think forty million dollars in Aptos and Sui. They were not all in on Solana. Solana just happened to be the bet that had made them rich. What what interesting background? Because yeah, it's I think Solana really did get knocked off its block uh, in terms of pricing a little bit yeah. heavier than Ethereum, Bitcoin, or even a lot of the other kind of layer one competitors. And I think a lot of that, like you said, was because of the public's perception of just a lot of the closeness between uh, Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX and Solana. And uh, one of my favorite quotes from Sam uh, was, I'll buy all the Solana at $3 that you want to sell and then go fuck off. Um, yes. And it was like this iconic quote on Twitter that he like somebody was trolling him and then Solana went from $3 to $2.50 and he looked like a hero and all that stuff. Yeah. But anyhow, um, it's no, good totally, to know. But like, that, so the thing that happened there, right, where the price goes, you know, the price caters over the course of like a few days, 
I don't want to sound too defensive of that because I think if you're if you're a fund manager and your job is to protect capital and you don't really know what's going on and you just sort of see something scary happening and you think that's like yeah. SBF and Solana might actually be like pretty intertwined, it is a pretty scary moment in the market. I think this is this is the same thing about when ETH dropped to eighty dollars or something around those lines, you know, uh, from from about twelve hundred dollars. It's just massive market panic, and that market panic, I think is unfortunate, but it's also not something you can really fault people for because we're all irrational humans when at the end of the day, when, you know, you get that fear in your head about something and you make a, you make a bad choice. So I I don't think you can really blame uh, people too much for that. But I think the, the real thing to look at is, you know, Solana has, uh, for most days this year in 2023 has had the most on-chain users of any network settles more transactions than all other networks on a daily basis. The users are still here and the developers are still here. And I think that's the real, and the developers and users are actually growing. And so those are the real things to look for where it's like, yes, there is this massive scare. Like a lot of people were, were worried. The doom and gloom headlines came. And, you know, I think internally there were a number of us who were, who were, you know, there, there was one moment in particular where there was about 26 million soul tokens that were unstaking from validators. Wow. It's like a three-day process on Solana. It's not like a 30-day process like on some other chains. Um, and we could see the end of the epoch coming. And the question was like, what happens next? Are they all going to Because dump? if 28 million soul of sell pressure hits the market, that, that could bring the price extremely low. And, you know, it wasn't exactly the price going down mattered. It was the confidence in the network going down that would have mattered. But we got to, you know, but what we saw is like this was just a lot of people who were scared and they were getting ready to sell if everyone else sold. But at the end of the day, like that, that moment passed and we did not see a mass exodus. We did not see massive sell pressure. We did not see massive volume on OTC desks or something like that. Um, like, and that's not stuff we have full visibility into, but the, basically the community said, okay, we got our bags packed but we're still here because we still want to see like, like if we all just hold on together, I think we can get through this together. And that was actually a really strong moment for the community to be like, Oh no, we actually we're bigger than the markets. We're bigger than the FUD. This, this thing is built for the long term, and we are building here for the long term as well. Yeah, no, before I toss it over to pizza mind for, for a question, I just want to say that this is a perfect example of something that I always say. And uh, price is what you pay, but value is what you get. And we're not actually trading assets. You're trading people's perception of assets. And so with, with Salon, it's a perfect example where, like you said, nothing fundamentally changed. There's more builders. There's more long-term growth. Um, there's more applications. So the fundamentals of that asset did not change. But the price changed, right? Because the perception about the asset changed. And now once all that perception is now cleared up and we're like, oh, Clearly, uh, they're completely separate and there's not going to be that much overhang, yada, yada, yada. Then the price bounces back up. But the people who really made a lot of money on this uh, were the people who were buying Solana when it went down to $4 or whatever, because they said nothing actually changed about this asset. Just people got scared and you buy the fear and you kind of sell it back to them when they feel uh, comfortable. But anyhow, that's kind of not a question, but something that I just wanted to add here. That's a great addition because it leads into my question. And that's where is the value in Solana being built? And I asked that question because this is probably the first podcast a lot of people are hearing about Solana. In Ethereum, they know what Uniswap is. Most people know about you know 
uh, other different things of where to go and find uh, to do whatever they want to do on Ethereum without trying to shill or anything, but just as a matter of being informative, like we are on this podcast, can you give a, a shout out to some of the value creating projects on Solana that people should check out, whether it's an NFT marketplace or a DeFi exchange or whatever, you know, is really, really big on there. What should we look for to get our feet wet? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, one of the best things about Solana is you can set aside 25 cents of token for gas fees and you can do hundreds of transactions with that amount of money. Um, and that what that means is the network's really fun and easy to play around with and figure out what you're doing. You don't have to worry about like, oh man, I've done 10 transactions, like that cost me like 10 or 15 bucks, right? You, you can really just play around with lots of different types of things. So, um, you know, Solana, I would say from an NFT perspective, there's a few huge NFT marketplaces. There's Magic Eden, there's Hypersphere, there's Exchange Art, which is like for one of one pieces of art. And one of the cool things you'll see is like the NFT landscape on Solana is very different than it is on Ethereum. There's profile picture projects, of course, like there is everywhere. But a lot of the time there's additional functionality to these things because the cost of transactions are so low. So there's there's stuff like staking, which is kind of boring. But, um, you know, there's this whole thing uh, called Boots where basically your NFTs can – it's like – I always joke they should have called it Mr. Potato Head. Um, but it's basically you can like take items and put them on and off of your different NFTs. And so people what, what, are, is, what is it called again? Beast? Boots. Oh, Boots. Yes. Okay. Why it's called Boots, I don't know. We didn't build the thing. <laughs> it was built by uh, the, you know, a whole different team and, and stuff like that in the community. But the idea is like you can have your NFT and you can, you know – you can buy a Santa hat for it for Christmas. You can buy like a Halloween costume. And like these things are silly and fun, but like they're just little ways to kind of like personalize something that you have even more than that. And on one level, it's like, oh yes, that's a toy. That's a game. On the other hand, like in five years, that could be Fortnite, right? Yeah. And, and that's the thing to think about is like a lot of the a lot of the primitives that you can take and you can you can look forward, you can say, you know, in a more evolved state of this technology, this could be the way that people outfit their characters in a decentralized gaming ecosystem. This is like different portability, the same way that Fortnite has brought in all this different IP from all these different games that you can then all use within this one sort of game platform. I think on the NFT side of things on Solana, I think that's where stuff gets really exciting for me personally. Yeah. Um, um, Yeah. We can talk about DeFi too and a bunch of that stuff, but uh, fundamentally it's like, it's a fun place to try stuff out. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, and, you know, I was one of the the naysayers kind of, of NFTs early on because I was such an early DeFi and, and kind of crypto guy. So I saw the NFTs and I was like, well, like, you know, I played RuneScape. So I remember, uh, you know, the, the blue party hats that had no statistical value and they were worth the most, right? Or you had, uh, you know, all these different uh, items that like they had Santa hats, but they were rare. Yeah. They were one of a kind and they were worth, a, you know, a billion dollars, uh, but they had no value, like a, a new sword or anything. So I was like, okay, well, from that standpoint, um, you could have digital art or digital pieces of, um, you know, history, essentially. And you yeah. could be the owners of that and that would, you know, make a lot of money. And so, um, you know, there, there's lots of fun little things like that going on in Solana, but there's also really technical breakthroughs. Um, oh, yeah. And I remember listening to Anna, one of Anatoly's, uh, who's the found, co-founder of Solana, one of his early kind of podcasts talking about, I think it was called Proof of History, uh, which is the unique kind of consensus mechanism uh, that you guys uh, leverage, I believe. 
Um, and there, there's also something new that's being built called Fire Dancer. And I hear a lot of buzz about Fire Dancer from really smart people. But to be honest, I don't really have any idea what it is. Um, so could you yeah. walk us through those two really, you know, they're kind of technical stuff. Maybe we're going to do a, a, a high level overview. Yeah. So the first thing I want to say is proof of history is not actually a consensus mechanism. It still runs on Nakamoto co- uh, consensus and still runs on proof of stake in terms of its Sybil uh, resistance. Okay. The proof of history component is you can think of it like putting a turbocharger on an existing consensus mechanism. So what happens with proof of history? Um, so on let's use Ethereum as an example. So on Ethereum, there's a mempool. And a mempool is a giant pool where... Uh, people submit transactions to and they say there's a certain amount I want to pay for a gas fee and the validators get to pick what transactions are coming out of that. What that means is you never actually know exactly when your transaction is going to process. It's up to the validator to basically say, yes, I'd like to accept this transaction or no, I would I would like to reject this transaction, right? Um, so what proof of history does is it actually in in a decentralized way through a something called a verifiable delay function but basically it timestamps every transaction that comes into the network and so because every validator is running on the same distributed clock when that transaction comes in you can include it in a block and you can know exactly where it fits in the block and every validator in the network will have that transaction in the exact same spot in the block in a, in an ideal situation what this means is that the transactions can basically not have to be confirmed by the whole network agreeing that this actually did happen like happens on Ethereum. If, if you sent an Ether or something like that to an exchange, you'll notice there's like a, oh, Binance requires you to wait 32 blocks until we actually credit you or, or some number of blocks. And that's because of the, the possibility of a double spend. Solana doesn't really have a possibility of double spend in that same way. And so proof of history allows the network to continually produce blocks as opposed to on other blockchains where there's a a few seconds of pause between each block production to basically give the network time to catch up. So uh, this means that Solana's performance is much more like a a Web2 service where you can just stream data in and out of the thing. Um, So that's the difference with proof of history. I know that's a little bit of a technical answer, but I think it's important to understand how it actually speeds up the network, because most and, and I, tricks to speed things up compromise on decentralization. And proof of history is actually only works if decentralization exists. Okay, so, so before we move on to Fire Dancer, I think that's awesome. Give us a little bit of uh, context around what, what goes on. Because Solana's gone down several times. Yeah. Um, you know, if you use uh, certain wallet providers, they're like, hey, don't use Solana. You know, we'll get messages from Coinbase, don't use it. So a lot of yeah. you know, our listeners, they'll they'll tag us and be like, hey, like what's going on with Solana? Is it broken? Uh, totally. Are my transactions reversed? Can you give us some insight into what happens when Solana goes down and, and why that's happening? Yeah. So this, um, you know, this was something that we first saw in sort of September of 2021. And really, th- these were all effects of massive demand for the network, stress testing components of the network that just hadn't been stress tested that high before. Uh, every time you have like an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude increase in traffic, certain pieces will break that you don't necessarily think are going to break. And so, you know, uh, you can call this a curse of success in some ways that, you know, we got to a place with the network where the uses of the network and the demand for the network actually was higher than the network could supply for a time being there. 
And this was really, um, a lot of this came down to what got labeled spam attacks or denial of service attacks, which wasn't really technically accurate. But basically, on Ethereum, you can pay your way to the front of the queue. If you really want to make sure an arbitrage opportunity executes or someone mislists a board ape for 20 ETH instead of 200 ETH, you might pay 2 ETH to make sure your transaction gets to the front of the line so you can capture all that economic opportunity. Back then, and even like in the, you know, in the spring of 2022, Solana didn't have a way for people who were trying to do those types of transactions to pay to get to the front of the line. They had to, they had to, they attempted to land a transaction by sending the same thing like 10,000 times in, a sec- in one second because they were like, one of these transactions has to land. If I can just basically flood the zone, my chances of getting this arbitrage opportunity are higher. So this is where the idea of local fee markets come in. And local fee markets are similar to what happens on Ethereum with gas fees, except on Ethereum, transactions are uh, scarce and they're expensive. On Solana, they're abundant and they're cheap. So what happens is, let's say you and I are, are trying to mint the same NFT, and we want the exact same one. Now, the one of us that pays the higher fee will get it nowadays. But that won't actually have any impact on pizza's ability to like send a Solana transfer. And so this is like the thing. If you remember the time when like the Board Ape Yacht Club did their Ape coin drop and people were spending like $3,500 on gas fees just to grab that airdrop. On Solana, the gas fees for the airdrop may have spiked, but that would have had no impact on the rest of the network. Like Chainlink wasn't sending Oracle updates because the gas fees were so high for, for a period of time, right? All those types of, like, this had massive impact on bridges, on roll-ups, and all these sorts of things. Um, with with local fee markets on Solana, the impact of, of price is isolated to just the area where that spike is occurring, which is pretty oh, cool. Wow, that's that's incredible, uh, and a much necessary innovation, really, for yeah. any blockchain network. So, Austin, we can't thank you enough for spending the last 35 minutes with us, smartening us up, cl- giving us clarity. Uh, clarity is a big word for, especially for me going forward. We just have one more question for you before we let you get back to building the future. What's one company that's building on Solana or supporting Solana? who's going to have the greatest impact going forward, whether it's uh, a venture capital group, market maker, a developer lab, which, or even just a product that a lot of people yeah. are collaborating on. What's the one thing we need to watch out for in 2023 and beyond? So I think the thing behind the scenes is fire dancer. Um, so Fire Dancer is getting built by Jump Trading, um, which is a high-frequency trading firm. But they're building a new validator client for Solana. And Solana is going to become the second network. Ethereum is the only other network with more than one validator client. Um, and having multiple, know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's Ethereum, Bitcoin, and Solana are the only ones with multiple validator client implementations. Um, but Bitcoin is obviously not a smart contract network, so it's a little bit, little bit different there. Um but the power of this thing is a fewfold. First, uh, it's going to enable greater resiliency of the network because you have two different copies of the implementation. So the chance of there being a bug in the same location on both pieces of code is extremely low. The second piece is they're able to sort of start from scratch. And by starting from scratch and knowing 
the state of Solana today, you can actually build a system that's much more optimized and performant. So a lot of the learnings they're coming to about how to build something as efficiently as possible can actually be brought into the existing validator client as well. And so we're, we're hoping that 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 work will see dramatic increases in performance on the network. In testing environments, they've pushed 1.2 million transactions per second through it. Now, I want to wow. be clear. I don't think we're going to see 1.2 million transactions per second like actually on mainnet. <laughs> But this is like the upper theoretical bounds of what's possible, and that's about 10 times faster than the current theoretical bounds of what you see uh, on the existing client. So that's kind of a back-end thing, but I think there's going to be a... I think you're going to see developers being able to build even more stuff on Solana you can't build elsewhere because the performance of the network is going to scale to that point. Awesome. Well, well, well man, Austin, there's so much more that we want to dive into Uh and there's just a million different ways we can go, but unfortunately, we're we're hitting time, yes. uh, and you got a lot to do. So we want to let you go. But um, without further ado, Austin, um, where's the best place we could point to uh, our users so that they could learn more? Um, so I would say for developers, there's a Solana Developers Twitter account. Um, that's a really great one to check out, or Solana.com/developers. If you want to learn more about the network in general. Um, you know, check out uh, just like Solana.com, tons of info there, whole ecosystem project directory and that sort of thing too. I will say also the Electric Capital Report, which we mentioned at the top of the episode today, is definitely worth a read. They give a really great profile of what's happening, not just on Solana, but the state of development across the entire ecosystem. Awesome. Thank you so much, Austin, for that. We look forward to uh, reconnecting again uh, in the near future. Take care. Thanks for having me. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.